Hey folks, my name is Andy Sido, and welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is Asheville, North Carolina-based songwriter Chuck Brodsky. Hey there, hi there. I hope you're doing well. Um, it's great to be back, doing another episode. Um, and it, it always just tickles me, all the fun people I get to meet and chat with doing this podcast. And this week was no exception. And I'll get into that in just a second. But first, uh, a little bit of show and tell. I am playing some shows this summer outside of Colorado. I've got my weekly uh, Eddie V's Piano Trio gig on Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays, and occasionally at some other spots too, but I am actually going on the road this summer. I'm releasing a new EP in August with a single in July, um, and I'm also turning 30 in August, which um, means I'm doing my Dirty 30 baseball tour, where I'm playing some shows around the Midwest and also uh, taking in baseball games on my off days. It's going to be a whole lot of fun uh, starting out in Denver, actually, the very first show will be in Westcliff, um, an awesome house concert I've been doing every year in Colorado. And then uh, I'm going through Nebraska uh, on the way in and the way out. So there's going to be Aurora, Hastings, Lincoln, doing a couple house concerts, listening rooms, a couple club shows. Um, then I'm going through St. Louis. going to see Cardinals, Pirates on my birthday on August 22nd. I'm also playing at the Focal Point as a nice listening room um, that I'm excited to get to play at with some friends. And then I'm doing BB's Jazz Blues and Soups on my birthday as well, right after the game. And they're right across the street from each other, so it's perfect. Then heading on to Nashville, doing uh, some gigs in Nashville, a couple shows too. Um, and then heading north, and I'm still booking this part, I'm heading north between Nashville on up to... Cleveland, where my best friend's getting married Labor Day weekend, um, and I'm just going to be booking stuff on the way up, house concerts, listening rooms, your friend wants to host a show, whatever, let me know. Uh, then after that, heading back home on I-80, going through Michigan and Chicago. I've got a few gigs booked uh, on the way back as well, so it'll be fun. Leaving August 18th, getting back September 12th, I think. Um, so yeah, the Dirty 30 Baseball Tour. If I'm in a town near you, Come check it out. All the dates are getting posted as they're booked at andysiddo.com slash shows. Now on to my guest, Chuck Brodsky, who is a Philadelphia-raised songwriter who now lives in Asheville, has lived there for a long time. And I first heard about him through a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Lyons. Shout out to Jeff. Thanks for the intro. Jeff and I met um, because I was teaching lessons at Lincoln Station. I believe I could have this a little wrong, but I was teaching lessons at Lincoln Station Coffee Pizza Music in Lone Tree, Colorado. There's a little teaching studio behind the stage. And I think I was between lessons and Jeff happened to be there eating dinner. And we got to talking and became friends, became friends on Facebook and started chatting a little bit here and there. And then uh, I think I posted up uh, a fictional baseball story about – or a, a song, excuse me, a fictional baseball song about a player in the 1920s and 30s who has to choose between going after a major league career and starting a family, and he doesn't get either one. He, he decides to go after the baseball career but ends in the minors. Anyway, 
I posted that up, and he and he shoots me a message, and he goes, "You know who you gotta, you know who you gotta hear, um, my friend Chuck." And I'm gonna send you a couple CDs. So a couple weeks later, uh, the baseball ballads and the baseball ballads two came in the mail, and I tossed them both in my car and was kind of listening uh, for a couple months, and I was just I was struck by it because it wasn't. Um, it wasn't all the baseball songs you'd expect to hear. Um, it wasn't the, and Willie hits another home run kind of, kind of stuff. It was unsung heroes. It was thought out, uh, research stories. It was stuff that, it was stories that you haven't heard before, maybe. Um, and I, I really appreciate that in music. And that's kind of what I loved about, about both the albums. For instance, there's been lots of no hitters thrown uh, in baseball history, but, Chuck Trose chose to write about Doc Ellis's no-hitter, which he threw on LSD. Or the tale of Mo Berg, who, I don't know, we could say he was a great professional baseball player, but he was a professional baseball player. However, it's the fact that he was also a secret agent on the side and spoke a bunch of languages. Um, there's the story not of the first black player to play uh, in white Major League Baseball, but rather the first white player to play in the Negro Leagues. I didn't even know that ever happened. Uh, so these these stories are all great. Or there's a song uh, called The Death Row All-Stars. And that's about ball players that the warden kind of puts together a team and these ball players have to perform and that's sort of how they stay alive for a little bit longer. And if they have a bad game, their date might get set for the next afternoon. Really great stuff. And his music is not just baseball songs. That was just my introduction. I then branched out and started listening to a whole bunch more of Chuck's stuff. And um, it's it's all sort of in that vein of well-thought-out lyrics, well-thought-out music, unsung heroes. Um, but they're not all about baseball. There's a huge catalog of other stuff. I just happen to be a huge baseball fan, and that's how I was introduced to his music. So... And if I started this interview off by saying that uh, Chuck has a close relationship with the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and is also a member of the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, you'd say, he's an athlete. You had an athlete on your podcast. Well, no, that's, <laughs> that's not true at all. Uh, he's, well, or maybe, I don't know, he might be a decent athlete, but no, he's a songwriter, uh, and his songs have meant so much to, to so many people, um, that he's been he's been recognized in that way. He has 22 songs um, in the Baseball Hall of Fame Sound Recording Library. He's played three times at the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, and and for his uh, for these songs, he's also a member of the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, and was one of the first couple inductees that uh, is not that was not an athlete is not an athlete. Excuse me. So anyway, I, I won't jump too much more into his backstory because we talk about it over the next hour or so. But um, that's my that's my little introduction. It's great stuff. Uh, check out his music. You're going to enjoy the interview a lot. And uh, we're actually going to start off by playing one of his songs. This is called Radio. Quick thanks to our sponsors, Patrick at PQ Mastering. 
Patrick puts the finishing touches on this podcast, and for any of your audio or restoration needs, visit pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. For any sponsorship inquiries, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com.
They give radio report cards They give them varsity letters They let them wander freely In this T.L. Hannah sweater He visits all the classrooms If ever there's a test He whips out his box of crayons And tries his very best Everyone knows radio The townspeople adore him And the students pat his head Just like their parents did before then Anderson, South Carolina Folks will tell you shit Wasn't nothing but a little love and attention Gave voice to a mute Chuck, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. And you're living in Asheville, is that right? Yep. How long have you been there for? 26 years now. Okay. So you must like it. I do. I like it a lot here. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Is there a good, uh, is there a good music scene? There's an amazing music scene, really. Um, particularly among the young. Um, bluegrass is very big around here in old time and there are there's like a whole new wave uh, there has been for quite a while of young people playing that music and uh, also people have been gravitating to Asheville people who play all different musical styles so the scene has really emerged over the last 10 years I'd say yeah yeah it's it's one of the places on the top of my list to check out um but so but you grew up in uh, in Philadelphia is that right I did and I spent 15 years as well in the San Francisco Bay area before I moved okay. here So coming up growing up in Philadelphia when did you first start into start excuse me when did you first get into music how did that happen It was a piano in our house and I had an aunt who was musical she played the piano and the guitar and when I was really a toddler, she would sit me on her knee when she would play the piano, and I think she saw the joy and delight in my eyes. And then I started to just tinkle on the piano on my own, and I started picking out melodies by ear, and so my mother enrolled me in piano lessons when I was five, and I took them for a few years, but... Mainly, I, I, I was playing by ear, and even while I took lessons, I was still really playing by ear, and my teacher saw that and basically encouraged it instead of squashing it. And so I, you know, I, I grew up just gravitating to the piano. I, I couldn't walk past it without stopping and playing it for a little while. And I think when I got to college, uh, actually, literally the first day of college orientation yeah, was when I decided I was going to do music for a career. Um, it was one of those odd things. I was in a big hall where we were being welcomed to the university, very big university, Penn State. Okay. And, and uh, I was sitting by a window in the end of a row, and two guys were just outside 
on the lawn with guitars sitting there playing and singing and I'm looking at this guy here I'm looking at these two guys this guy here he's welcoming us to university these two guys are playing I'm like back yeah. and forth and then I just knew I just said that's what I want to do but I didn't play guitar at the time so yeah. I knew it was going to be a very long range plan you know yeah uh, I probably would have to invest 10 years in learning how to play the guitar and in learning to write better songs, all of it. You know, I, I knew I was nowhere close to being ready to do it professionally. And I would just, I was just going to set myself on a path of, of working towards it. And that's kind of what I did for years. I worked odd jobs and yeah. played open mics and, you know, kept raising my bar a little bit at a time, my songwriting yeah. bar and my performance bar and all that. And, when I was 32, I launched out and gave it a real shot. So in at orientation, just seeing two guys play guitar, deciding, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do that. I mean, how did your how did your folks react to that when you, <laughs> you know, hey, I went to orientation. It was great. I want to be a musician. Well, predictably, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that I declared that to them right away. Um, but I didn't last long at university because I realized where my interest was and that I wasn't, I wasn't applying myself in school because it wasn't where my heart was and yeah. I didn't want to waste my parents' money. They were paying for my education. So after about six months, I withdrew, but I still stayed in State College, Pennsylvania because a, it was fun, and I had a lot of friends, but the music building was the real draw for me there. It, they had, I'm just going to say off the top of my head, 50 or 60 little practice rooms with pianos in them, and I, as long as you were in there by 11 o'clock at night when they locked the building, you could stay. So that was my routine. To Even though I wasn't a student anymore, I'd still go up to the music building every night, stay till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And yep, and write songs. But but, but I guess to, uh, to to get back to answering your question, I got a little sidetracked. Sorry. Yeah. But um, it wasn't so much that there was resistance from my parents on my becoming a, a professional musician. It was more that I don't think they could understand the concept that. I wasn't ready. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I was a long ways off from being ready. And I can remember my father saying to me at some point in my mid-twenties, which would have been, you know, a good five, six years after the decision I made, I can remember him saying, well, you know, it's fine. If you want to be a musician, that's fine. I don't, we don't have any problem with that, but why aren't you out there doing it? Yeah. So that was the tough part that, you know, to, to communicate to them that I know I'm not ready. I know what's out there and I know that I don't measure up yet. Yeah. That was, you know, that was a little hard for them to grasp, but I, I have had uh, some real turning points over the years, of course, and I've now been professional for 30 years. And yeah. at some point, um, my parents said to me, you knew what you were doing all along, you know, and that, that was yeah. the greatest feeling in the world. That, that and the fact that they genuinely love my music and support me all the way. Yeah. So 
it's it's a beautiful thing. It yeah. took some time to get there, but yeah. I think really it was just a matter of like my parents are achievement oriented, right? Like right. a lot of parents, a lot, a lot of people from their generation would be, and so. Once I was able to hold up things to show them like, oh, this newspaper said this about me or I got booked for this festival or so-and-so's going to cover my song or this song's going to be used in a film or on a TV show. As soon as I had some bona fides to show them, that, that changed a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, it, well, and I think that would take a lot of... Um, I don't know, a lot of maturity in a way to, at that age, say, this is what I want to do, but I'm nowhere near being ready to do that yet. I mean, did you ever feel like you went out too soon before maybe you were ready or that, I mean, I, I don't know, it, it's, you, you, you see a lot of people at open mics that are, and it's great, go out and play whoever you are, um, who are maybe not quite there yet but don't realize it or or you see the people who have the perfectionist syndrome where they do just need to get out and play but they say oh i'll go next week oh i'll go next week it's not quite ready yet i mean how did you know i'm ready to go to go give this thing a real shot it's a very interesting story actually i didn't know until i went for the first time to the kerrville folk festival in texas it's an 18-day-long folk festival. Yes. And it's singer-songwriter-oriented. Yep. And it's really, the entire festival is really a celebration of songwriting. And after the concerts end, people sit around campfires all night long till the sun comes up. All sorts of different little scenes. There could be 50 or 100 different little pockets of 5 to 20 songwriters sitting in circles, swapping songs. Nobody's jamming. Everybody's listening intently to what this person has created, what that person has created. And so I went there not knowing where I stood because I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you know, as much as I loved it there, I think people, by and large are fairly jaded and I didn't get feedback. I didn't get the positive feedback from the open mic that I probably should have gotten at that stage where I was at. Um, of course I did get it from a few people, but I went down to Kerrville really thinking I was still several years away. Yeah. And I played my songs around campfires for a couple of weeks, you know, night after night. And I had, I had one woman who booked a, a, a music venue in New Hampshire come up to me and ask me how often I tour New Hampshire. And I had other people come forward who booked venues saying they'd like to book me next time I'm in their area. So they, are they were presuming I was already professional. And that told me I was probably ready. I, I didn't know that I was that far along because I wasn't getting the local feedback, but when I went down to that festival and people on a national level were responding to me and kind of flipping out some of them and making it very clear they would book me if I come to their area. Wow. That, that told me. And, 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 and even still, I had a job that I was a little afraid to leave because of the you know security of having income and, and health care. And... Then I had a motorcycle accident. Yeah. And it was a pretty okay. bad one. I flew over the handlebars and, and uh, ended up 
basically not being able to work for a couple years. I had a couple surgeries, and I used that time to work on my songwriting, work on my guitar playing, and when the uh, disability money ran out, I booked my first little tour and haven't turned back since. And, so that's, and that was in the early 90s, correct, when you first went to Kerrville? Yeah, my first Kerrville was 1992, and my rec was ninety uh, one. So my first Kerrville, I was actually using a cane and still healing from one of the surgeries. Wow. Okay. Well, so let's let's jump back then to San Francisco for just a second, and uh, I, I will go to my first Kerrville this year. I think I was I was not a winner, but I was a finalist in the in the songwriter competition this year. And so I said, well, I want to go down and, and check it out. But I keep, it's just funny because the last two or three weeks, Kerrville's gotten uh, brought up by people. So it's, it's interesting that it's such a big part of your story. Well, I, just, I don't want to derail what you were going to ask me, but Kerrville is the very foundation I built my career on. Yeah. I'll, I'll just state that. The values, the the community, it, it played the biggest role you could ever imagine in in my doing this because it showed me before i even started doing it professionally it showed me the right way to do it it showed me it showed me how to do it with meaning yeah. meaningfulness and heart and and it just reinforced a lot of things for me so that when I immediately launched out after that, I, I had this foundation of the Kerrville family and I was rooted in, in good values, I, I think. Yeah. Oh. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. That's wonderful. Well, shout out to Kerrville then. Um, so jumping backwards a little bit, because there was this gap of time between growing up in Philly and ending up at uh, in Kerrville, Texas at this festival in 92, you hitchhiked to San Francisco and you were working some odd jobs. And then uh, was it the, the Tattoo Rose or the Tattoo Rose Cafe you were playing at weekly? Doing an open Tattoo mic? Rose Cafe. I had just arrived in San Francisco after hitchhiking. My last ride, in fact, invited me to crash there for a few days. I was intending on heading further south in California, but uh, she and a roommate and I went out for dinner that, that first night and passed the Tattoo Rose Cafe and their door was open and the, they were in the middle of an open mic and somebody spoke out to me, sticking my head in through the door, hey, do you, do you play? And I sheepishly said, yeah. And they said, come on in. And next thing I know, I was seated at the piano singing a song and had a room, <laughs> a room full of new friends. And so I ended up sticking around. And that open mic was a very important part of my development. Um, I, yeah. I probably went every Friday night for two years until I moved across the bay. And the, the venue stopped having music. But it was owned by a famous tattoo artist named Lyle Tuttle. And Lyle was the uh, official tattoo artist for the Rolling Stones' Tattoo You Tour. He had really? done uh, one of Janis Joplin's famous tattoos and a lot of rock stars. He was, he was like the rock star among tattoo artists. Wow. 
and he had this cool cafe and it was a real interesting scene because there was a bona fide circus sword swallower like an old time dude with tattoos all over his body that would come to the open mics with these swords you know like <laughs> two yeah. foot long and and put it right down his throat and other you know other really bizarre performers it was you know, it was kind of vaudevillish in some ways and also straight up yeah. singer songwriter so it wasn't just uh guitar players showing up and playing a few songs you had a you had a, entertainers i mean of, of all sorts at these open mics yeah and uh, apparently uh, michael stipe from rem was a regular at the open mic back then i didn't know that at the wow. time i mean he wasn't a, he wasn't in rem there was no such thing as rem at the time i don't remember him uh, from the open mic but apparently he was a regular that's interesting. And was there was there any songwriters that were maybe a few years older than you that were doing the open mic with you every year that you really looked up to? Um, there were a few. I, I can't think of any from the Tattoo Rose in particular that were older than me that I looked up to. But I also played several other open mics across the Bay Area. Um, for many many years and there was there's a venue that still exists called the freight and salvage and their open mics yeah. um, were a very high level and several of the regulars I, I probably seven or eight of the regular weekly open micers went on to have full-time careers um, some really good artists wow but wow. you know i had a i had a I don't know the right way to put it, but there weren't a ton of songwriters that I looked up to that were not professional. Yeah. And and I think it's just because I have listened in my lifetime to the greatest. You know, I know what a great song is. I, I'm not saying that I write them, but I know what a great song is. I've studied songwriting long enough. It's been my passion my whole life. And yeah. they're just... You know, if somebody isn't that, I can't assign that to them. You know, I can't make them. A, uh, I can't look up to somebody that isn't isn't that. You know, yeah. I can I can certainly acknowledge their talent, and they may very well be better than me and all that. But you know, they're not this artist that I listen to. You know, that I know is the cream of the crop. Yeah. So, you know, I have my heroes and, and, and such, and there were people in the open mics who certainly inspired me, people that, whose music I loved, people who um, wowed me at times. But to, I, I don't think I could say I looked up to any of them necessarily. Nobody yeah. was, like, untouchable. Sure. Yeah, of course, of course. So the San Francisco, you're playing open mics for years, uh, and 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 then there was the motorcycle accident the money runs out you go to kerrville for the first time in 92 and you're playing songs for people and and being received well and one in particular was a song called lefty that you played for uh, andrew calhoun and not only did he like the song you inspired him to start a record label around i i, I can I, is it correct to say research-based songs um you know, or um, what? They may, a lot of the songs that he put out would be research-based songs, 
I have a hard, I would have a hard time like really pinpointing what Andrew was doing with just one word. I, I, I would say literary songwriting would be okay. if I had to find one single word to describe him. Songs that were more literary than, say, your typical pop songs. Songs that required intelligence to listen to and understand. Songs that were written with art in mind as opposed to some commercial success. Mm -hmm. you know. So, and, and I think he did something very, very special at that time to, to actually put something out that he knew wasn't going to be popular in terms of sales yeah. but in terms of artistic integrity he he nailed it he really nailed it he put he filled a void not saying that other labels didn't put out terrific stuff or the best of the best yeah but andrew andrew put out people who were deserving to be heard regardless of whether they would ever attain fame right yeah yeah, wow. And and so the, after this festival, which was obviously a, a killer experience for you, you go on the road for the first time and and what was that like? I mean, what was the first what was the first tour? Well, I had friends uh from the Santa Cruz area, a, a trio called City Folk, and they had already been touring some. And I was on their mailing list and I looked at their postcard and I basically contacted every single venue on their 15 date tour and I got a certain amount of those venues to book me and the very first gig was a little podunk place called Victor Idaho population 200 something just under the Teton Pass from Jackson Wyoming and I pulled into the town after driving across Idaho and you know it's like a cow town and yeah. it, it, it was like two blocks long with one blinking light and I thought, huh, what did I get myself into? And then I had this other thought as I stepped out of my car. Well, you never know. Which has since become sort of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. my, my go-to phrase because that turned out to be a magical night. I had no idea there was this little pocket of cool people living in the middle of nowhere in Idaho. And they had this cool cafe, and the gig was a delight, and I came back a couple more times over, over those years. So when I was based in California, my tours were often six months long because I was at you know the beginning stages of my career not making enough to live on. Yeah. And so I couldn't go a third of the way or two thirds of the way across the country, play a handful of gigs and then come home. That didn't work economically. Once I left, I had to do a big loop, you know, and, and hit every region that I could. So that's, that's what I did. But um, I moved to North Carolina after two or three years of touring that way. And part of the reason I moved here was because North Carolina is a great hub for launching out to different regions. Um, mm. Geographically, it's just sort of a perfect spot. I can get to a whole bunch of different areas in, in say, a, a, a very long day. Yeah. And, and so it just made sense, you know. Yeah. And at what point 
could you drive and play a couple shows and it economically made sense? I mean, obviously moving to North Carolina was a huge help, but was there a song or a tour or a festival or a moment that sort of uh, brought you up to another level where you were, you can make your full time living and, and be comfortable playing music? No, I don't think so. I think it was just a matter of one small step at a time, um, building an audience because you know you can't really get paid well for gigs unless you draw well. You know there are there are venues, um, nonprofit venues or nonprofit uh, folk music organizations, music societies that do one concert a month and and they often have a bank and they can they can offer you a guarantee that's certainly going to exceed what you bring in the door and they're yeah. not worried about that at all um, so in those situations great but otherwise if it's a commercial venue well they're not going to guarantee you more money than they think you're going to bring in the door right and so that's just the reality it took a lot of years of visiting the same places over and over again once a year for word of mouth to spread the people who saw me coming back and bringing friends this time and even still after 30 years it's always it's a struggle you know yeah. and there's no rhyme or reason i might i might go to a venue this year and have a terrific turnout and next year come back to the same venue i know i did a, a great show last year i know it was packed and maybe it'll be half full yeah and right. I can't, there's no rhyme or reason. You know, it, it just is, it turns out how it turns out, and it's not a knock against the performer. I didn't suddenly become less popular. It's just that this time around, people had plans or whatever, and next year might be full again. So it's, yeah. there's nothing predictable about it. It's just a matter of, I knew this was, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And come what may, I'm going to be out there doing it. And so I just had the faith that over time things would get better and build. And eventually I'd come to a point where I'd make better money. And, you know, it all, it all proved to be true. I'm, it's still a struggle, even yeah. after 30 years, especially because of the pandemic kind of erasing a lot of what was in place for me already. Sure. Sure. Well, you seem to be very stoic about it. This is this is what it is. That was last night's show. We'll see what happens next time. And I'm going to go do the, do the next one. But I love what you just said. Hey, this is my decision. This is what I'm going to do and uh, and stick to it. Um, to, to talk about your songwriting style a little bit, you have a very extensive catalog um, you know, ranging over many years. Uh, and and I've, I haven't been able to dig through all the albums yet you know there's there's all kinds of different stuff but it's all great but the a theme that i notice a lot is is you do like to sing for um you know unsung heroes or or, or write the song from the perspective that hasn't been told 50 times is that part of your personality very much so very much so and it's a real dedication of mine towards my songwriting to avoid writing things that have been written about over and over again by other people and to look for things that feel fresh to me, that feel important, have meaning. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to attach their own sense of importance to different things and what's important to me might not be that important to somebody else, but at least 
for my own sake, I feel like everything I ever put out there has meaning. Yeah. I don't do any, I don't ever sign my name to something that's just empty, meaningless, only a novelty. There has to be some meaning in it, something meaningful in it. Yeah. For me to want to put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with, with, I mean, that, that's, I, that seems like a theme with, with your whole catalog. Uh, when did, was that a conscious decision to do that? Um, Hey, I'm going to, I'm not going to write the song about Jackie Robinson. I'm going to write it about Eddie Klepp. I mean, were, were those kinds of things, conscious decisions? You said, I'm going to do that. Or it, I mean, is that natural for you to be, to totally gravitate towards, you know, the, the less talked about thing? It probably is, but I would have to say, to answer you honestly, it was a discovery I made along the way. Yeah. Um, I can remember when I wrote a song called Radio, which was used in that movie of the same name. Yeah. And it was because my dad mailed me a newspaper article about the two characters long before the movie ever came to be. Yeah. And... I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this. At the very least, I'll do it, you know, for my own sake, privately, and have something cool to show my dad. You know, this article resulted in this song, but ultimately, I ended up using that song um, in public. But in the writing of it, I realized, wow, this is exactly what I want to be doing: telling stories like this that have. Um, they portray people who set really cool examples. People you can hold up and say, this, this is a positive light. I want to make a positive contribution yeah. with my songwriting. I also, I mean, I have, other, I have other things that guide me as well, other thoughts. Like, I speak my piece, you know. If there's something uh, politically or, or social-oriented, uh, that I feel I need to say, I say it. But um, yeah. really what I'm looking to do is give something of value, whatever yeah. it might be, whether it be something uplifting, something that touches your heart, something that makes you laugh, something that makes you think. But there needs to be something in it of meaning. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a, you do do a lot of political songs and social songs uh, as well. When you put when you wrote your first one and put it out, or when you wrote your first one and played it live for the first time, were you worried at all about reaction from half the crowd or anything like that, or were you just saying, "Hey, this is this is it. Here it is. I'm speaking my piece." Um, that's a good question. I I would say I I'm sure I didn't worry about it. Because also, you know, I was younger and we were, as a society, much closer to a time when songs often were political in nature. Yeah. You know, I, in, the, in the early mid-90s, we were probably only 20, 25 years away from when that was really a popular thing. And those songs still carried over and were being sung and influencing the generation of songwriters I came from. But... Unfortunately, society changed quite a bit, and a lot of people don't want to hear things that aren't pleasant 
you know? Uh, yeah. They, they want very uh, easy to listen to things that don't challenge them in any way, what they think or believe. And that's what I'm up against currently. Right. I have a, a personal duty yeah. to sing some of these songs, but I'm judicious about it. I mean, I won't go into, I won't sing them in a house concert that I'm invited to play in a very conservative community in the deep south. You know, I, I know my place. Yeah. Um, I know if, if I'm in Santa Cruz, California, or Boulder, Colorado, or, or yeah. you know, Asheville, North Carolina. Even here, though, I mean, I've had people get up and walk out of my shows. Not a lot, but I've, it, yeah. it's happened. There are people who have become alienated listening to me sing my spin on the, on what I think is the truth, my take on what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, that, that could affect overall, you know, my popularity. There, there could be hundreds or thousands of people out there who have heard some of these songs and said, no, nah, he's not for me, even though they might like some of my other material. But I, I do feel a sense of, um, not wanting to ruin anybody's night. You know, if somebody has paid good money to come see me in concert, the last thing I want to do is cause them to go home upset. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not about me persuading them to believe what I believe. That yeah. evening is about us all being together and enjoying the experience. And... I want to play music that can unify people, not yeah. divide people. And I know that some of these songs are very divisive or, or, I mean, they're only divisive because of how stubborn I think people can be about what they believe in and, and not want, even wanting to consider anything else. Sure. But, um, you know, that, I just have to walk that fine line. And there are times when it's more appropriate than other times. Um, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I yeah. have a lot of songs I can play. But, you know, the bottom line is that I want to give something, like I say, a value to everybody there. Right. right. Whether they agree with my politics or not. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm attacking them for their politics. Not in a two-hour period when they've paid money to come see Chuck Brodsky sing. Yeah. I can record these songs. Yeah. They're on albums. Sure. I feel good about that. I put them out into the world. And when it's appropriate to sing them live, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Another topic... Um, that that you've touched on quite a bit throughout your career is baseball, and and mm. there's clearly a sense of uh, romanticism that you have with with the sport, and in and in Chuck fashion, you know all the no hitters that you could have written about, you write about the one where Doc Ellis is on S, uh, LSD, um, or you know Moberg was not a great baseball player, but he was also a secret agent and, and, and a very smart guy, fluent in, I don't know, what, nine languages or something like that. So you've, uh, in your style, you have albums about uh, baseball songs as well. What is your relationship with baseball? Well, my dad 
has always been really into baseball. He grew up playing it and still played softball when I was a kid and took me to lots and lots of ball games. And in fact, we still meet down in Florida every spring for spring a week of spring training. He treats me. Um, so baseball has always been something I've loved. But then after I was writing songs for a bunch of years, it occurred to me that baseball is like a gold mine in terms of folklore. Yeah. It just has the coolest stories. Everybody can relate to baseball. And it fell in my lap. I didn't go after it. I didn't intend to do this. You know, that song you referred to earlier, Lefty, it was only because Andrew Calhoun basically insisted I sing it at a campfire at Kerrville. I wasn't playing that song for people because I thought people would 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 feel like a song about sports was trite. Yeah, you know, it, it, that was just you know my my naive um, fears that that I can't sing this song. Everybody's going to think a song about baseball is trite. I had no idea it's an entire genre unto itself, and that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of baseball songs out there. So, you know, I sang the song at Andrew's urging. People responded to it. I started to play it at open mics. People responded to it. I started making it a regular part of my show. And then the idea for the Ballad of Eddie Klepp came to me. And now I had a second baseball song. And at that point, I noticed people were referring to me as the guy who writes about baseball. Well, I only had two songs about it, and, and it, yeah. neither of them were conscious decisions to write. Um, so I thought, wow, people are noticing. It's fun. They're cool stories. I feel like I'm getting away with murder, and people are celebrating that. So I wrote a third one, and, and more of same. And by the time I wrote the fourth one, I think I started realizing, hey, I could really pursue this. It's a niche that nobody else has claimed. And, um, you know, the types of stories like you alluded to, they're, they're cool stories. Whether or not I tell them or someone else tells them or they never get told, they're cool stories. And so I should tell them. And, and so I have a lot of fun with that. And it, it's caused my music to reach across to different... Um, uh, segments of society, people that never would have listened to a folk singer, but because it's guys singing baseball songs, they'll cross the genre and, you know, they might become a fan of mine. But, you know, I think once once I had that fourth one, I, I knew I was onto something. And then ever since, I just really, truly, like I said, have felt like I'm getting away with something. I can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe I get celebrated for doing this. It's yeah. all just too cool. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And when you talk about bringing people over and maybe listening to, to the folk music, the songwriter music, and they, they wouldn't otherwise, you've gotten some, recogni from, some recognition from uh, groups, of, groups of people who might not otherwise have any relation to folk music whatsoever. Um, you know, and they've, you've played at the Baseball Hall of Fame. You've played at the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. 
Um, and you have 22 songs in the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, sound recording library. Um, that's got to be a pretty special accomplishment, right? It's amazing. I'm tickled, tickled to death. And, and every time I consider it, it's the same feeling. It never gets old. Uh, you know, um, I just think, wow, who, you know, who am I to get no, any kind of notoriety in the world of baseball? But it's great fun. It's, it's brought people into my life from the world of baseball I never would have met otherwise. It's allowed me to sing my songs in some pretty cool places and be part of some pretty cool events. And it's just ongoing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm one song away from being able to put a third baseball CD out. So it won't wow. be the next one I put out. I've got a regular studio album I'm working on now, but that'll probably be the one soon after. Wow. And would you know what the last song is about yet? Or are you still searching for it? I'm kind of searching for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's neat. And what, it, what does it mean to be in the sound recording library? I mean, is, is there a booth, a listening booth at the hall of fame where people can go listen to these songs? I mean, what is, um, yeah. What is the sound recording library? Well, it's part of the research department. And when I started writing these songs, I wasn't even aware there was a research department at the hall of fame, but, um, they have, I haven't been, I haven't been to the audio department in many years now. The last time I was there, they had cassette decks, like the, you know, like the $10 Sony flat cassette deck yeah. with, a, with real cheap headphones and drawers and drawers of recordings. So at that time there were, there were cassettes, CDs had just started becoming available. But, you know, it's, everything's categorized and filed away. And if you're there to do research on baseball songs, you can access that library, pull out anything you want, and give it a listen. Wow. Wow, that, that's pretty neat. And, and not just the, the Baseball Hall of Fame, where you've performed a few times as well. You're also a member of, is it the, is it the Philadelphia Jewish uh, Hall of Fame or is it the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame? Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Okay, the criteria is clear. Um, from from Philadelphia, Jewish and related to sports. Yeah, and until I think I may have been the first exception that they made, or, or there may have been one other for a non-athlete, a non-professional athlete. Um, I think they're starting to branch into the arts a little bit. But my fellow inductees included the general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles, who were fresh off winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. The, uh, a guy who grew up locally and won the Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins. Wow. Another guy who had uh, been a pitcher, and I think he pitched for the U.S. Olympic team. There were two or three other people, but like they were all serious sports athletes. Yeah. And so it was a real tickle to be up there on the dais with them and being yeah. recognized for writing songs about sports. Yeah. Who to thunk it? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is pretty neat. How did, and did, I mean, did you just get a phone call from somebody? How did you know that this was even a possibility for you that you were going to be inducted into this? 
Well, there was an effort behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of to get them to consider me. One of their previous award winners uh, is a fellow by the name of Jason Stark, who's a nationally known baseball writer. Uh, Jason used to be an on-air guy with ESPN and then wrote for ESPN. Now he writes for The Athletic. And Jason approached their board and and urged them to consider me without me knowing about any of this. And so the phone call was a complete surprise. Wow. It, it was great. It was a, you know, black tie affair and really cool. Ah, that that's really neat. And, and that was, that was just in 2019. Is that right? That was recent? Yeah. Cool. I bet that was a great feeling and a, and a heck of a day. Amazing. Truly amazing. And, you know, the the great blessing in all of this is that my parents are still alive and they got to witness this, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. That's special. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very special. Uh, one more thing I wanted to kind of ask you about your songwriting and this, this, uh, I noticed this with the baseball songs and I do, with your songs in general, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of research put into it, which we've kind of touched on earlier. Um, I wonder sometimes, where did you find this story? Uh, you know, a particular song was the Death Row All-Stars. I've driven through Rollins, Wyoming a million times, uh, you know, and I was like, Rollins, Wyoming, and these guys are playing baseball to hope, and they're on death row, and if they do well, they might last a little longer. That's a crazy story. I mean, where do you... I mean, are you out actively searching for these things? Where do you find these stories to write about? I don't really actively search for them. They, they, I think they search for me. I think they find me. Yeah. That sounds silly, but I think it's true. You know, people, people bring ideas for baseball songs to me because they know I'm interested in, in possible subjects. Um, I could just be reading an article about something and the light bulb goes off. Ah, this seems like a great idea. Um, Yeah, I don't don't think I've ever said to myself, hmm, I think I I should write a song about so-and-so. Yeah. I think something sparks me first. And then, obviously, if it's a real person, there's research to be done. Um, when the song you mentioned specifically, the Death Row All Stars, I learned about because I am a member of a baseball research organization. It's called Saber, the Society for American Baseball Research, mm-hmm. and they send out quarterly uh, publication with um, research papers written by baseball scholars, and there might be fifteen or twenty such um, articles per issue. And this appeared in one issue many years ago, and it was just such a fascinating story to me that I researched it more. Um, This kind of ties in with the research department at the Hall of Fame that I I mentioned a little while ago. I used it extensively for my earlier songs. Um, The Ballad of Eddie Klepp, in particular, was my first connection to the research department because <clears throat> all I had to go by was literally one sentence in a book about Jackie Robinson, about this fellow named Eddie Klepp, the first white man to play in the Negro Leagues. Yeah. I 
had approached this thinking I was going to write a song about Jackie Robinson. And I yeah. went to a bookstore and I was looking through the book wondering if I should buy it, if this is the right book to buy, you know, the definitive yeah. book on Jackie. And that's when I came across a mention, just a mere mention of Eddie Clapp. And I realized right away, that's got to be what my song is. But then, where do I go from there? Um, the internet didn't exist. Or, yeah. or it was just coming yeah. into existence. You couldn't just Google Eddie Clapp. Yeah. And so I didn't know where in the world I was going to turn to. And my dad suggested I call the Baseball Hall of Fame. He didn't even know there was a research department. And I don't, I'm not even sure who he thought I'd be speaking with there. But I did call. Yeah. And the receptionist, I, I just asked, is there anybody that might be able to tell me something about this fella? She said, I'll put you through the research department. And the, the director of the department that day happened to field my call. And when I asked him if he knew anything about a guy named Eddie Klepp, and he said, no, who was he? And I told him the little bit that I know. His response was, wow, that sounds like it would make a really cool poem or a song. And I yeah. said, funny you should say that, because I'm yeah. a songwriter, and that's what I was hoping to do. So, wow. He called me back an hour later and had spent some time looking through their files and he found something and Xeroxed it and sent it to me. And probably from my first eight or 10 baseball songs, that's how they got researched. I would call him and say, Tim, do you have any information on this subject? And he'd phone me back a little while later and say, I've made you a bunch of Xeroxes. I'm mailing it today. And you wow. know, it, it might be 50 pages of, of articles wow. back then. Uh -huh. But once, you know, once Google came to be, um, I, you know, I was able to do, I'm able now to do all the research right from home. And uh, I haven't had to involve the Hall of Fame in any of that research for a long time. But they were literally my my go-to resource wow, wow. Are, are you concerned um with google are you concerned about fact checking i mean when you find an article do you try to go find it in another spot yeah i learned uh firsthand that with baseball songs there are serious baseball scholars out there very serious baseball scholars and i don't ever want to be you know called um called on the carpet. I don't ever want to have somebody look at me and say, he's not accurate. You know, it's, yeah. So, you know, it, it's possible that I wasn't as dedicated to that with my first couple of baseball songs, but I became extremely dedicated to it when it got pointed out to me that Eddie Klepp spelled his name with one P instead of two. Ah, you know, just like a little thing like that. I could lose credibility. Yeah, and I don't want to lose any credibility over a stupid small mistake. So it's it's very important to be meticulous. Yeah, yeah. So what's next? I mean, as things are starting to open up, hopefully, um, you know, are you getting out on the road? I know you've got a new studio album coming up. I mean, what's what's your plan over the next few months here? Honestly, I don't know. Everything's yeah. very much still up in the air. Um, I've been live streaming for the last 50 weeks. Yeah. And I just moved from the Facebook and YouTube platforms to a, a different platform called Connect Club. And, you know, I think about returning to touring, but 
right now it's just not possible because if you if you just take any region, let's just take the Northwest, for example, where in the past I might have had 10 venues I could play over two weeks. Some of those venues don't exist anymore. They've gone out of business. Some of them might be house concerts or nonprofit, once a month folk venues that happen in churches. They're not, they're not open yet or they're not, they're not comfortable having shows. And so maybe I can only get five of the 10 gigs in a, in a particular region. Well, meanwhile, you know, the cost of a car rental has just gone through the roof and the cost of flights are through the roof and the cost of hotels have gone up. And so it's not economically viable to tour at the moment. Mm -hmm. Not until more venues return to operation and prices yeah. come down for, for traveling. So in the meantime, I'm playing a few local gigs, not many. Yeah. And I'm looking at going to a couple of regions not too far away from here for a few gigs, but I don't think I'm going to be able to resume full-time touring before probably spring of 2022. Yeah. If ever. If ever. I mean, I'm also looking at the possibility of never returning to full-time touring. Maybe yeah. just doing it part-time and trying to supplement my income with online streaming and uh, I do an educational thing for schools with my Holocaust songs. So, yeah. um, you know, the last 14 or 15 months have shown me how much I really like being here at home. Yeah. Um, traveling got harder and harder for me through the years to the point where I wasn't enjoying it as much. And so, you know, if I could balance things with less touring and more income through my music from home, I'd be very happy about that. But We'll just have to see how things go. You know, there's a, a burnout right now among listeners, viewers to live stream events, and hopefully that will pass. Sure. Once, but, you know, I, I honestly don't have an answer. It's just, uh, we'll have to see. I'll have to keep yeah. monitoring the situation and adjusting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and do you have any sort of a release date for, for the new album? No, um, but, and part of that ties in with what I was just saying because sure. it doesn't really make any sense to put an album out right now and not have any gigs to, to sell it. I, I don't sell very many albums um, through my website or other online sources. It's at live shows where I sell them. So to invest a bunch of money into making and, and pressing these CDs that are just going to sit right now and tie up what little money I have, it's not, it's not a sensible thing to do. So I'm, I'm probably gearing up towards releasing it late fall maybe or early winter when ho I'm hoping that I can at least start touring a little bit. Yeah. and have something to sell at the shows. So I'm just kind of taking my time with it. There's no pressure. And yeah. the other, a very big element to this is the, uh, the, the funds needed to make the album with. It's not the best time to try to crowdfund, I don't think. Yeah. And so I've just been trying to do it on a shoestring bit by bit by bit. And when it gets closer to the time when I do need 
a larger sum of money to pay a graphic designer and to pay for the pressing and stuff. Maybe we'll, we'll see what happens then. But yeah, you know, that's still off, off a ways. Some months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you so much for taking the time to chat with me and obviously we could keep going and, and go into all sorts of different directions, but, um, yeah, I, I appreciate, um, you taking the time to chat and answer some questions and, um, I hope to talk with you again soon. It's been my pleasure, Andy, and thank you so much for having me and for all the preparation that you did. It was pretty obvious that oh. you did a lot of homework, and I thank you for that. I appreciate that. Okay, my conversation with Chuck Brodsky. That was a lot of fun. This is one I've, I've been looking forward to, um, hopefully getting him on, and I did, and it was a great conversation. So thanks, Chuck, for taking the time. Uh, any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can send them to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. If you'd like to help out in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash andysido, S-Y-D-O-W. I sometimes put up exclusive content from these podcasts. Uh, I release songs early on Patreon. Sometimes I'll do a you know production video, how I produce something and, and why, and post that up on there. Um, getting creative with some different things. Announcements. So if you'd like to keep up, uh, you can join for as little as $3 a month, patreon.com slash andysido, S-Y-D-O-W. If you'd like to help out in a non-monetary way, totally fine. Giving this podcast five-star rating and review is a huge, huge help and just takes a second. If you don't mind, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, give it that five-star rating and review. I'm going to play out with a song, and I realized, uh, you know, Chuck and I talked about specific songs uh, some I know we talked about Death Row All-Stars, and there's a few different things I could have I could have picked from, but I really wanted to play out with Letters in the Dirt. It just seems right for the moment. So enjoy this song, and uh, go check out Chuck's stuff, and, uh, you know, at, get, get on his email list and see when he's playing near you. All right, thanks for listening, and I'll chat with you next week. Me and you. We never booed Richie Allen Never understood why people did He had a homer every time he stepped up to the plate That's what I remember as a kid Richie in the field out there by first base the Target of some mighty foul words With his shoes he'd scrawl between the pitches Ooh, great big letters in the dirt Philly fans been known to get nasty When Joe must go They'll run him out of town I've seen Santa Get hit by a snowball And then get hit again When he was down Me and you We never booed Richie Allen Did sometimes strike out 
I was too young to read the papers To know what all that booing was about That big collapse of 64, it was ugly They blew a lead of six and one half games with 12 to play Some might say the fans were justifiably angry World Series tickets printed up in vain Printed up in vain Philly fans They've been known to get nasty When Joe must go, they'll run him out of town I've seen Santa get hit by a snowball And then get hit again when he was down So going back to old County Max Stadium Teaching me the rules of the game Root, root, rooted for the home team And those other people should have been ashamed This was before the days of the million dollar contracts the days of the artificial grass He stood a bit outside the lines But made him fair game for those times Cause Richie Allen, he never kissed a white man's ass Me and you, we never booed Richie Allen Now we pound our mitts and We'd yell, we want a hit How could they call a guy a bum After he just hit a home run Didn't make any sense to a kid well, I since found out all of these years later Now I know a lot more than I did If back then you knew daddy While those other people booed Thanks for letting me have my heroes as a kid 